0: The CEO Roundtable brings together operations professionals at the top of their game to define and explore what it means to be highly effective in a scale-up organization. And what sits at the heart of it is highly curated peer-to-peer roundtables where CEOs talk about things that matter.
1: I absolutely love my roundtable. We've been together for about two years. And without
0: exaggeration, I have made friends for life. To find out more, go to cooroundtable.com. That's cooroundtable.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the inaugural episode of the Operations Room, a podcast for COOs. I am Brandon Mincinga, and this is my lovely co-host, Bethany Ayers. Uh, How are things going, Bethany?
1: I'm doing great today. Oh, I don't think I should say that. I'm doing really well today, Brandon. Thank you. And I,
0: I, by the way, I think I pronounced your name correctly. You did. Did Well done. Yes. Thumbs up for Brandon.
1: So anything exciting happening in your world or should I just pop right into the excitement of mine?
0: Uh no, please, please do. I, I'm thrilled to, to understand there's something exciting happening.
1: Well, so the excitement for me is I'm getting a bread maker or bread machine, depending on which side of the Atlantic you come from, arriving today. I'm very excited. Uh, reading a book, and of course I can't remember the author's name, is called Ultra Processed People, and it's horrifically depressing. It's about all of the ultra-processed foods that we're eating, bread is one of them, but I love bread, but I'm unwilling to pay like seven pounds for a nice loaf of bread. So decided instead to spend 200 pounds on a bread maker that we will definitely make it up for itself in the course of a year.
0: Okay. So I love the impulse here, which is processed foods, not good. You still love your bread, so you need to get your bread. You don't want to pay X amount of dollars for a very expensive loaf of bread effectively. The danger is... You've paid 200 pounds and it sits on your countertop for the next six months and does not get used, but that's not going to happen, Bethany.
1: Definitely not, right? It'll get used for at least the first couple of weeks.
0: There is no segue from Brad, but we will segue regardless. (laughs) (laughs) The topic for today uh, is what is a COO? And we have a a fabulous uh, guest uh, coming in the next uh, few minutes, uh, Divinia Knowles, uh, and she's an expert on all things COO. But before we get to that, just want to set the table for that conversation with a bit of a back and forth with Bethany and myself. We'll do this on future episodes as well. And really the question here is, what are the types of COOs? And I know that you sent me a wonderful article uh, a few weeks back, and it was a great description. Uh, Allison Pickens is her name. She's the former CEO of Gainsight, and she wrote this article, The Rise of the CEO, talking about four flavors of operations professional in the skill up world specifically, and I loved it. It resonated with me. Those four roles made tremendous sense, and it was the first article I had seen written about this topic where I'm like, yes, th- this actually is the world in which I live. So with that, I don't know if you want to kick us off here, Bethany, with a couple of thoughts or just uh, walking through the the flavors of ice cream of the operations professional.
1: Absolutely. And also, i just like to say that I wish this specific episode existed when I became a COO, because I feel like I spent the first, I don't know, six weeks, two months researching what's a COO and trying to figure out what my new job was. And if I'd only been able to listen to this, I would know. And also it was in that hunt that I discovered the article from Allison.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Tell me about it. And I feel like the, uh, you know, this, this singular article from the Harvard Business Review from 2006 is literally the only piece of, I don't know, literature, if you want to call it that, that is really, was somewhat useful, I guess, but not really useful given the fact that it's 20 years old and is related to, I don't know, larger corporates or what have you, I guess.
1: Definitely. And as you mentioned, Allison's is very much about businesses that we work for, the types of businesses we work for. So she has four types that she mentions. I actually think that she's missing a fifth. So I'll add that in a fifth. And now you have to test, you know, make sure, keep me honest that I'm remembering all of them. So there is the chief of staff, COO. So the extension to the CEO, no direct reports, generally when the business is a bit smaller and not the ones that we're going to be talking about much on this podcast. Then there is the operator maybe. So like the person who runs every runs the entire business while the CEO evangelizes and is externally facing. Then there's the chief customer officer. So looking at everything to do with customers from marketing all the way through to delivery and the revenue cycle. And then the final one is what we think about for larger businesses is like the traditional COO, even though we've already established there is no traditional COO. And that is somebody who looks after finance operations. And so like a smaller part of the business rather than running the entire business. And then for me, I think that there's actually a fifth, which is the same as the finance and people person, but on the product, and development side. So somebody who's come from a product R&D side and then moves either to take over all of that or larger parts of the business, but really knows how to align lots of people to get stuff done.
0: Okay, so that makes sense. And uh, Maybe I'll, I'll shoot back at you just a bit of a recap just so I can summarize it in my own head or a little bit. But uh, So we've got the chief of staff, which is really the extension of the CEO, and you see the chief of staff pop up in kind of seed-based companies and whatnot. That's fabulous. Love that. We're not not going to talk about that very much here. We have the, the the second one that you spoke about, which is you have the CEO being the evangelist of the business. They're not interested in the day to day operations of the company, and you have that more classic traditional CEO uh, come in to basically run the business itself in totality. And then there's the the operations professional, and the operations professional really is you know somebody coming into the business where. They're really kind of acting as the glue for the organization where the CEOs is noticing some misalignments across the company, across teams and so on. And they come in to to perhaps run OKR processes or they might pick up a function or two like data or IT, these sorts of things. But it's kind of a, a really on the ground operations person that is uh, that, that kind of glue individual. And then we have a fourth one, which is more of that holistic uh, customer journey ownership, uh, which is customer success, sales, marketing, coming together under one individual that kind of gets that GTM engine playbook in place a little bit. And then the new one that you've introduced here is really on that product development side. And I guess maybe the the two of interest to us, I suppose, perhaps on this podcast, one is that product one that you mentioned, which is interesting. And I think this kind of customer journey question of, of what, what that is a little bit. So I think with with that... I don't know if you want to maybe just talk about the specific spectrum, I guess, around the customer journey one right now. Because, you know, I feel like a CO coming in with a commercial lens where they understand the finances of the business, the forecasting of the business, the company strategy that you're trying to execute upon, and them applying that to the GTM engine itself and pulling together what is classically a CRO role, which is kind of uh, sales, customer success, marketing, and rev ops and so on. And helping that get bootstrapped properly to really be an engine by which you can get to a Series B or a Series whatever, you know, that feels like very much like a, a central figure in the organization that is kind of a, a CRO in lieu in some sense. And for that type of individual and a scale up, what, what is their future? Because if, they're, if you're hiring a CCO at some point in the future or a CRO, what then happens to that type of individual, do you think?
1: Well, so funnily enough, that was my experience. I actually started at peak as the CRO, but in hindsight, or at least like speaking to you and the roles that you've had as a COO, I think they're very interchangeable. It would just happens to be a different title, but I don't look like most CROs that I know. And what I realized is something that actually was very helpful from a former colleague of mine who'd worked at Bridgewater and introduced this concept to me of three main types of roles within an organization and the people that fall within those. Let's go from the operators. So a lot of traditional CROs or CROs of larger businesses, I would say are very much operators. They think about what's happening between now and maybe six months timeframe. They don't get bored because they fight fires, but they also don't mind churning the handle, having those meetings, you sales is all about discipline, having the same meetings every single week, asking the same questions and changing behavior that way. Spoiler alert, I am not an operator in any way. Bores me to tears.
0: That, that doesn't sound like Bethany to me.
1: No. <laughs> yeah. And although there, there's some level of firefighting, it's just like you can't think because there's so much coming at you. I'll then describe the other one that I'm not, which is the visionary. And so somebody who thinks about strategy, often this is your CEO. It's the looking two years, three years, five years, 20 years in the future, seeing what the world's going to be like, holding that vision and then aligning everybody to that. I'm not great at imagining an imaginary future very much where I sit. And I think a lot of COOs in tech sit are within this is like an architect realm. And so, our time horizon is between six months and two years. And we're the bridge between strategy and operations. We can even call ourselves operational strategy <laughs> And so, what you're doing is helping the CEO or whoever is a visionary turn it into something that the operators can then deal with. And so, you did this as COO, I did this as CRO, I built out that go to market engine. But once it was built, really did not want to operate it day-to-day. You've never seen a more depressed person than I was trying to operate something day-to-day after I'd built it.
0: What does what your, your pipeline look like? Come on, we're, uh, we're stage two, or we're, <laughs> we have no value, no no pipeline built here.
1: <laughs> yeah, whereas in backfilling with somebody who loves doing that is great because they probably aren't somebody that loves building it from scratch, but they love operating it and optimizing it. And then I was able to move on to, Basically, being the glue that holds things together, building the systems and the processes that make sure that we can scale. And as you're scaling rapidly, there's enough change and enough need for architecting to keep a CEO entertained. And obviously, the CEO is adding value.
0: Uh, perfect. So why don't we wrap here and we'll move on to our our guest. Uh, so let's let's do that.
1: Excellent. Looking forward to it. I'm excited to welcome Davinia Knowles to our conversation today. For those of you who don't know Davinia, she was COO, CFO, and director at both Mine Candy and Packed Coffee, where she also served as interim CEO. She has held or still holds lots of chair and board seats. There are too many companies to list. Uh, just want everyone to know that was me writing that, not Davinia being particularly big-headed. And she's also an angel investor. In 2017, Davinia retrained as a coach and combined that with her previous experience to become the COO coach in the UK. And I don't know, Davinia, possibly globally, you'll need to let us know. She is working with startups and scale-up COOs and CEOs to help guide them successfully through starting up, scaling up, and exiting their businesses. In addition to all of that, Davinia is also founder of the London COO Roundtable. She Founded that 12 years ago and is how I know Divinia. And actually, I guess, Brandon, how you know Divinia as well. It's a fantastic organization. I get a tremendous amount of value from it. And it is, for those of you who don't know, an opportunity for COOs to come together to define what it means to be a highly effective startup and scale up COO and help do some self coaching between us, along with having some amazing resources to lean upon. Davinia, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm
2: really ecstatic to be here.
1: The first question is a simple one, but probably not an easy one to answer, which is, what is a COO and what does a COO do? Bit of background on that. When I became a COO, I was like, well, first of all, I was asked to write my own job description, become a COO, and then do the job. And I was just trolled the internet trying to figure that out. So I probably should have just spoken to you in the first place. It'd be great to
2: hear your thoughts. It's such an interesting question because I'm, I'm minded about how when I first became a COO, I had a similar experience where I was like, what is this? What does this even do? And also that every COO that I met had a completely different job description to me. So I couldn't quite really benchmark what I was supposed to be doing with what others were doing. And also I set up the round table because this question just kept looming around what do COOs do? And all COOs are really quite different. And even in the round table today, it's very difficult, therefore, to find other COOs who do the same job as you, because normally when you talk to them, you'd suddenly start realising all the differences between between your role and theirs. I also think it's complicated by the fact that it's different for different size and stage of companies, and also different based on the profile of the CEO that you work with. And so. I normally encourage the COOs that I work with to sort of start developing their own mental model of COO for themselves in the place that they're in with the people they're working with um, and think about it that way. There is a way that I think about the biggest version of this role, the version I call the full fat version of this role. And I started thinking about it through the lens of three R's. So it's sort of the model that I developed. And I know there are lots of different ones, lots of different ways of thinking about it. We can talk about different resources for the COO role. But the three R's for me became remit, relationships and responsibility. And that is to say, normally COOs have some level of functional responsibility, albeit that the functions can be completely different depending on what type of company they're in, what their strengths and spikes are. Um, And what they're being asked to do relationship, because I feel like most CEOs are successful because they are able to develop prerequisite relationships across the organization, not only at board level, also, of course, with their CEO, and that's fundamental, the CEO they're working with, with their C level peers as an influencer, and then across the business with their functional leads and with whoever else is in the business, the rest of the team, in order to be credible. And then the last piece around remit, the biggest version of this role really is uh, across the whole company, cross-functional working, working on the business instead of simply in the business. They normally do a bit of both. And that's sort of what really makes this role special in in my mind is that alongside the CEO, they're one of the only C-level execs who works on the business as well as in it and has that really holistic view of the organization. And so that's sort of my take on it, albeit that COOs in different sizes and stages might be doing some pieces of this more than others, dependent on where they are in the journey.
1: I think that's really helpful. There's two things. One that for me is always a litmus test is, are you the partner of the CEO? And that is absolutely part of the title and where the title comes from and then this isn't one that i had realized was quite as holistic or maybe as common for all roles but i often describe myself throughout my career as being the glue that holds everything together and i think that's what you're talking about in terms of the relationships so it's it's having those two elements that make the role what it is one of the questions i get asked all the time and i suspect you'll have a much better answer to than i do is What is the difference between a COO, a chief of staff and an ops
2: lead or a VP of ops? And which one do I need? Yeah. And it's really interesting because I think, again, if I look at the roundtable, we do have some chief of staffs in the roundtable, but actually they're COOs and they're only in there because when I spoke to them, I realized they'd been wrongly labeled. I was like, (laughs) you're actually a COO, not really a chief of staff, are you? So it's a really interesting one. But I think largely the, the biggest distinction is definitely between chief of staff and COO for me are chief of staff largely doesn't have any reports as far as I understand it. They are um, an extension of the CEO in terms of providing extra capacity, being a strategic lead sometimes as well, not always being a real thinking partner, but they have less functional responsibility and they may run the office of the CEO, but they don't have other functions. Whereas a COO normally is some of those things, all of those things, and also has some level of functional responsibility in the org and direct reports. So it sort of really makes the difference. I also think as a, as a COS A lot of the COSs I've met have a strategic consultancy background and have been brought in to really be that sort of research strategic kind of help to the CEO versus a COO who's really running like executional, enablement delivery, that sort of thing. So there's quite a a nuanced difference in those roles. And as I said, the ones in the round table where they're wrongly labeled, they start talking about the fact that they do have functional responsibility. Actually, they are working cross-functionally across the org. They are influencing they are representing the CEO in different places. And I'm like, mm, mm, that doesn't really sound very chief of staff to me. It sounds like you've just been sort of like given a slightly different title, which is kind of interesting, which does mean that, you know, you can, you can have some really interesting people in the chief of staff role that might not have loads and loads of experience because they don't necessarily have to have, whereas a COO in quite a lot of experiences, you get COO co-founders who are less experienced, but generally speaking... They have to have some level of experience otherwise i don't think they hold a lot of weight with the board and that's a problem
0: yeah yeah that makes sense and then i think the chief of staff versus the ceo in, in my mind at least that's much more clear to me i think in a lot of ways i think where i get muddled slightly is with uh, either head of operations or vp of operations and that distinction a little bit so i don't know if you can give us some observations as to what does that difference look like in your view
2: Yeah. And so I think about sort of the VP ops that I work with, there's a question of whether those folks are on the exec or not as well. So are they true peers to the rest of the C-level? Because in reality, that COO role, I would argue, sits slightly above the exec. They may not run the exec. They possibly have some delegated responsibility from the CEO for the exec, as in running exec meetings or looking after the operational cadence of those exec meetings. But they are; they do have some kind of bigger role to play, and I would argue that a, a VP Ops Lead may not be operating at that level. They may have cross-functional responsibility, but a slightly lower, lower level. There's an argument around as well. I, and I talk about this a little bit in my three Rs, which is to do with sort of the systemic squashing that you sometimes get, which can be very confusing about sort of some of these titles, which is. So having worked with COOs who are systemically squashed in some way, so I would say the two that that are interesting here are chief admin officer, which is a version of COO where they've been relegated to back office and they don't actually. Wow.
0: That sounds like a terrible job.
2: That sounds like a (laughs) terrible job, right? But you do get them sometimes and you're like, oh, you're not actually a COO. You've been your chief admin officer, right? So they're kind of in in a vertical and then they don't have the remit to operate across the whole org. Or you get the COO who's actually a VP Ops, they're, really, they're not really operating at exec level. They're not really peers to the C level. They're not, they don't really have the prerequisite level of influence to be a business partner with those folks. They don't really have the relationship with the CEO, although the CEO likes them and, and sees them as sort of efi- efficient and effective. They're slight, sort of slightly squashed down, and so—and I work with a couple of those as well, so, and that's interesting because they're sort of trapped they can't really ever really step into the power of the role because they're pushed down or pushed sideways. So I think that probably helps to, for me to kind of think about what that Ops Lead VP Ops looks like.
1: Switching track a little bit, I was wondering, kind of going back to the role of the COO, what size company do you think needs one? At what stage should a CEO start to be thinking about bringing in a COO?
2: Well, this is an interesting one because there are many different reasons, I think, why COOs get hired. And of course, there is a significant difference if you're a COO co-founder, because quite often those are very early stage companies. And it might be that you've got co-founders and one person adopts the CEO role. So the other one has to have something else. (laughs) So Either they're a CTO maybe, but they may be a COO instead. And then you've got a very early stage. And, and as I said, you, you know, then it sort of, they're, they're effectively a founder, but they've taken that title. And they may stay a COO because that's actually their spike in their experience and they really love that identity. But quite often I see that as more of a, they're given the other title, you know, you have the other one. So there's, there's that. So the, the, the founder, a COO distinction aside, There's a question of what is needed at different stages and why that COO is being hired. And I guess, you know, quite often in scaling organisations, when you realise you need a scaling firepower, you've got a fast scaling business and it makes utter sense to have a COO, you run into trouble when you have an organisation that thinks it should be scaling and it's not. They bring a COO in and that COO is experienced and then is bored because they're kind of sat there with nothing really to do versus having somebody who might be, a really exceptional operator, you know, head of ops, VP ops, who could then grow into that with the company, which also might be might be a good situation. You have COOs who join who actually are there because the CEO has a, not a hidden agenda, but they know that they're probably not going to be the founder CEO forever and a day. And it might be that that COO is CEO and waiting. So you might have a very experienced person there sat alongside them who's their sort of partner and their trusted advisor, because eventually they're going to be the person that That actually sits in that seat, no matter what happens to that founder, and/or other reasons. Right? The uh, the the article that's really brilliant about this is the um, the seven types of COO. Have you come across that? The HBR thing?
0: Yes, the HBR. We were talking about that. uh, Yes, earlier.
2: Yeah, and that's such a great article because actually, when you go through it, I think it's interesting for a COO to look at it and think, which one of these, you know, is the reason that they actually need a COO? Is it because they're scaling? Is it because this CEO is looking for an heir apparent. Is it because the CEO actually likes operating with somebody? Like, could be that they just really like having somebody else alongside them. So that's what they've got. They've got somebody who's a trusted advisor with them. And anything else, you know, it could be that actually I was talking to a CEO the other day, and the reason they're bringing a COO on is because their model is very operationally complex. And actually, there's just not enough hours in the day. That CEO probably could do it all themselves, but there aren't enough hours in the day for that to be the case and raise investment and do sales and all the other stuff. So having that really kind of partner who can really cope with ambiguity, complexity is really, really helpful. But there are many different reasons. And, and if you're going into a COO role, I'd really invite you to be really diligent about understanding that because so often I hear... Oh, it was missold. I got on in the inside and I was like, oh, ah, this is not what I was told. This is completely different in some way. It's not scaling. Or this is like far more complicated than they told me when I first came in. Or um, I've been asked to run the whole sales org and I'm not really a salesperson. And that wasn't really the thing. When I've So there's so many reasons why it becomes a different beast when you're on the inside to the outside. And understanding that I think is really key.
0: And then what's, just on this question of the stage side of things, you know, I've talked to some venture capitalist folks and their firm belief is a CEO should not appear within their portfolio until at least a series B or until at least the company is under 120, 150 people type of thing, uh, where you're much more into that scale, scale phase, I guess, in some ways. And, you know, my argument back to that VC was like, look, you know, I've come in at Series A in two different companies as a CEO. And it was, you know, less about pure play scale as it was repeatable GTM, an engine that actually works properly and has some level of scale to it. And really what you're prepping for is the bigger scale heading into a Series B, obviously. Uh, and, you know, the size of those organizations are, you know, 40 people, 45 people when you join type of thing and scale up to that 100 mark eventually. And then you, you raise your Series B and go on onward from there, I suppose. Uh, what's What's your take on that?
2: I'm sort of with you, Brandon, I, I've seen COOs at earlier stage than that VC was talking about. And again, because I think it's much more nu- nuanced than that. It really does depend on what that company's doing, how complex the operating model is. Even a, to a certain extent, that CEO, how externally facing they are, how ops savvy they are, because you can have some incredibly amazing, visionary, brilliant, creative CEOs that just are not... <laughs> They're not really operators as such, right? They can do bits and bobs of it, but it's not really their bag. So I think all of these factors play into whether a CEO should be there. But I've definitely, you know, and I, I've worked with some COOs who are in sort of series A businesses, trying to figure out how to sort of make sure everything is, as you say, scalable, repeatable. I also think you can hire a COO too late when you've got a lot of chaos because it's far easier to implement. Not too much, but some repeatable, scalable processes. Is at a point where you've got less people versus you've got loads of them, and then you've got to buy everyone into it and sort of shoehorn it in. And so, I'm with you. I think it's um, I think it's really about looking at the business, the CEO, the different c levels that are in there, what they're trying to do, the operational complexity, figuring it out from there.
1: Another the question I have, kind of off the back of this because you have spoken to and seen so many COOs over the years that I'm finding you like an invaluable source of data is, which has been more successful more often, COOs who've come, like experienced COOs who've come into a business or people who have been promoted or moved into a COO role who are already in the business. Do you mean moving up or moving across? Either. So probably up and across, because to your point, like a COO becomes more senior than everyone else, but they were maybe in the exec already in a different role, or maybe they were a VP of ops or a chief of staff who grew into it. So somebody who is an internal move either way, or bringing in somebody brand new who has the experience,
2: but doesn't know the business, which one tends to be more successful more often. I don't think there's a rule of thumb. I mean, there are many reasons that I've seen this not work and I don't necessarily think that they rely on whether that person was external or internal, whether they came up from underneath, whether they were a different discipline or C-level ro- role or C-role and they moved over. I think, you know, going back to sort of that thing around the three R's, I mean, without a shadow of doubt, the most often that I've seen this not work, it relates to their relationship with the CEO. So if they didn't manage to gain the trust of the CEO, if they didn't manage to contract well enough to work on the things they needed to work on alongside that CEO really well and taking into account what both people are good at, where their strengths are, that too. Values is an interesting one. If that COO, that person coming up from underneath or c level moving across, for whatever reason, doesn't share the values of the CEO and the values actually, you know, the underlying values outside of the codified values that may be on the wall somewhere. But I mean, the actual values of, of that person, because they've some sometimes it's like a CEO conceives of something and says, hey, COO, off you go. You go and enact this for me. And it might be very much against what they want to do, especially as it relates to people. I've seen A lot of reasons for this not to work and then other ones as well you know so main ones for me tend to coalesce around the ceo or there's another one around when i start working with coos that i coach one of the questions i quite often ask them is do you have full remit to operate can you actually go everywhere can you go to your cro and say let me work with you and the ceo would be absolutely fine with that could you go and talk to the board by yourself if you needed to or would the ceo say hang on a minute those board relationships are just mine you know, do you really have full remit to operate? Or are there conditions? Because the conditions might be the things that block you from being successful, really. And then other ones like, you know, there are some COOs in the roundtable who, like you, Bethany, who were a something CTO moved to COO or CRO moved to COO. And I think there's a question of identity in there, which is to say that Some people love the identity of being a COO. They they embrace it. They love it. They realize how powerful and potent that role can be, how amazing it is. And others don't, possibly because the company that they may have been in or the CEO they may have been with didn't value operations as much as they had hoped. Or something else is going on. Or actually, they are a CRO, right? That's in their blood. Or they are a CTO. And they're like, I love being a CTO. That's kind of my bag. And so something else happens where they move into that role and they're never quite like, they never quite actually are a COO. They're not like, this is really my thing. And so they end up sort of probably reverting back or not quite ever sort of taking the rights, really empowering themselves to go at it, I would say. And the other thing I would say is like, in actual fact, lots of COOs that I've met are quite introverted. You know, there's something about that servant leadership role, being slightly in the back not having to be the person who's out there in the spotlight, which actually means that making relationships and putting themselves out there sometimes is a little alien. You know, they don't necessarily get all the energy from speaking to people all the time. And so sometimes also that can, from a relationship standpoint, can stop them from making relationships at board level, for example. That happens a lot where you're like, you know, do you have the prerequisite relationships in your board? And quite often the answer is no, for whatever reason oh, I I don't really know that I could speak to them. It's like, no, no, I'd encourage you to go. You know, you're sitting beside the CEO, so you have to be able to talk to them. So lots of reasons why it doesn't work, but a lot of them around the CEO, but there are some others as well. It's interesting. And I'd love to hear what you think about this, given both of you have a similar spike. You know, quite often I hear from COOs, you know, our measure of success is that things don't break. And then suddenly something breaks and it's like, COO, what's happening? Whereas roles, sales, marketing roles tend to be a bit more shiny, right? Where it's like, you know, you get to make big sales and you, you know, so there are different sort of different success metrics. And how that then works when you move from being sort of CRO to COO, you know, given that that's quite an identity shift, is that something that you had to sort of make a shift around?
1: First thing I just have to say is it's
2: really interesting that
1: both of you are talking a lot about this as your identity, because I really struggle to have my identity tied to work in any way, regardless of what the role is. So I'm coming at it from quite a different point of view. But if I look at it in terms of the role and the remit, what I really struggled with, which is why I was so keen to do this episode and feel like there might be other CEOs like me, is just what is it? What is the difference? I get what a CRO is. How do I work with everyone? Where is my remit? How does it? What are the expectations? What aren't the expectations? And so it did take me a while to figure all of that out. But once I did, I enjoyed doing what I was already doing, but a bit more officially. Which for me is being that glue that holds everything together. And also laughed when you said it's, you know, most CEOs are introverts because Brandon and I are both introverts, but. I really enjoy one-on-one relationships with people. I just don't like big group relationships. And so I think that's part of where you can be the glue is by sitting in the room, listening to everyone. I listen way more than I talk. And then I just connect people, connect ideas, connect processes. And I think that's what works really well. And because I never felt that I was a CRO and it was not my identity, it wasn't that much harder to move into a COO role.
2: And I think there's something about... Actually, how do you have measures of success for yourself as a COO? And that seems to come up a lot because I think otherwise, when I hear there are tropes around the COO role that I actually don't like very much. That I sort of I don't agree with things like, oh, as COO you just do everything that nobody else wants to do, and I'm like, "Mm, that's sort of doing it a bit of a disservice as far as I'm concerned. And Jen Geary, when we were talking. Uh, we had a, a conversation. Jen Geary is really interesting. She's been COO for ages and also wrote a book called How to Be a Chief Operating Officer. She's a fellow at the Roundtable. And in one of the conversations she was in, she said, you know, COOs can be propositional, you know, and actually talk about what they want their role to be and kind of put it out there that, that this is a powerful role and how they want it to come into fruition in the business. And I sort of love that because there's a permission in there not to just have it as a dumping ground for all this stuff that nobody else wants, but rather, you know, who is the COO? What are they really good at? How do they bring value to this business? And, you know, they may have a really interesting spike in an area that could be really helpful that's not uniform, the other one is the classic COO, which oh, drives me nuts. But how are these roles actually crafted around these people and these experienced professionals? And how do you measure success? And I had this big conversation with um, my lovely CEO founder at PACT, which was like, "What do you? if I'm successful, what happens? And it was so funny. He was just like, the company hits its goals and its numbers. And I was like, oh, that's really interesting. Okay, fair enough. Totally <laughs> it?"
0: Exactly. I'm curious what you think, Bethany on this subject because I, that's exactly my answer, which is I'm not a garbage man. I don't clean up other people's stuff, basically. That's not my role. You know, the only thing that I think about in these roles is how do I deliver this company to the next metric set for the next round? That's all I care about, and my my time, mind share, and effort is geared in that fashion, which is you know I look across the organization holistically, which I do quite well, and then try to isolate what are the what are the variables that need to be solved or enhanced or accelerated to get us to that metric set. And that's all I think about, I would say. And I think that's truly, I, I mean, I'm saying this from my point of view, I guess, but that's truly what a CEO should do. <laughs> um, I'm, Bethany, I'm curious what, what your take is.
1: Yeah, I agree with both of you. I don't have much to add to that one. One area I do want to maybe, and it's a really big question, um, and so I'm wondering if we can cover maybe just a couple highlights on the relationship between the CEO and the COO is so important. In order to be successful, in order to hit your numbers, in order for the company to thrive. Yet it's ever changing. It's something you need to work on. If there's somebody listening who's a COO who's really struggling with their CEO at the moment, what are a couple pieces of advice, questions to think
2: about you would give them? I would really encourage any COO who's struggling with their CEO to have a think about whether they have sort of contracted well enough in order to build trust with that CEO and also whether they have set those roles up for success in tandem. So what is the CEO doing? How can the COO best help and serve And all of that sort of stuff. And so I also encourage, even if the COO has a relatively good relationship with their CEO or a very good relationship with their CEO, this constant conversation about their roles, how it's working, have things changed? So recontracting as time goes on, because the business will have changed. And if the business is scaling, then things are different all over the place. If there are gaps in the business, then that's significantly different for what the CEO and the COO may be focusing on. So you know, both having those really open conversations to encourage real significant trust to be built there, and also are they each working in the best way they possibly could to suit their strengths and skills um, and help each other? Uh, and again, and as I said, you know, if there may be periods of time when things completely change, especially if a CEO has to go out and fundraise, and then it's like, okay, COO, can you 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 need to sort of run things more autonomously for me? But all of this takes careful sort of organisation and contracting between those two roles in order to make it successful. But I would say there just has to be such an implicit level of trust there, and I feel really lucky because I had this, I've had this throughout my career, and I know lots of people don't, but I feel like. Without that, given how ambiguous the role can be, you know, without that, you don't have the prerequisite psychological safety to be as powerful as you could be throughout the organisation. So that's, that's really needed. And, I said, and, and as I say as well, I think other relationships here can help you as well. So other good relationships with sea levels other relationships with the board, all of that sort of stuff. But definitely there's, there's such power in that relationship. The one other thing I'd say as well is like there's something about COO as challenger, which is like the COO also needs to be a sort of a respectful challenger to the CEO. And that's not to say that you know you challenge on everything and don't do what you're being asked to do and all, all the rest of it. But there is an an element to which, if there are things that you don't really agree with or things that you are unsure about or you, you know, direction that you're not really clear on, being that person who asks challenges requests more clarity, make sure the CEO has thought about all of the different sort of consequences to their actions, that person. And sometimes as well, because of the sort of the power of the founder CEO and the wake of the founder CEO, sometimes CEOs can, can not be as, as much of a re- respectful challenger as they potentially could be.
1: I think it's one of those where it's sometimes easier at the start and then it gets harder over time. <laughs> so. To just keep finding the energy to challenge. Also, I always feel like as a COO or a trusted, even before I had the COO title uh, in multiple roles, I've been like the trusted advisor to the CEO, their deputy. It's basically, I've had two marriages for most of my career. So the one that I work on at home and then the one with my CEO. And it takes almost as much effort as the home marriage for the second one. Um, sometimes you have to ask yourself whether or not you really want to have two marriages.
2: (laughs) And and sometimes it may be that, so, you know, having a bit of tripartite coaching, and that's not even when you're in in a bad place where it's become a dysfunctional relationship, just sometimes it's nice to have somebody else in the room who's a non-judgmental counterpart who can help you help to facilitate some of your conversations or help with careful contracting around roles or be an observer or whatever it is, but that can be helpful too. And nothing beats social bonds. And that's the other thing. So with my, um, you know, so I worked with Michael Acton at Mind Candy and we had such an amazing relationship and I really loved him to bits. Um, but we sort of quite often gave for lunch together. And so we'd spend time out of the office, which was just sort of time to actually be friends. Sounds so, you know, it sounds very basic, but it's like then we had a relationship that, that sort of was outside of the work environment that we could also rely on.
1: It's kind of like making bread and how far the dough can stretch. And if you if you invest together, you can stretch the dough much farther when you need to fight those relations, you know, bring the challenges to it. You know that there's a depth that the relationship can withstand.
0: Yeah. but And Davinia, and, and just so you know, uh, uh, Bethany uh, bought a bread maker. So this is why this analogy is now occurring, I think. I don't know.
1: So bread is on the brain recently. Yeah, <laughs> Spending a lot of time with dough at the moment. So Davinia, we're rapidly running out of time. I've so learned so much from this conversation. We'll definitely take the three hours away with me. But before we go, two things. One is, if anybody's interested in either working with you as a coach or advisor or any other way of working with you, or interested in the CEO roundtable, how should they get
2: in touch with you? So. You can connect with me on LinkedIn and um, and message me that way, or else you can email me. I'm very happy for my email address to be shared so that folks can get in touch with me. But yeah, I, I really, really love working with COOs. I think probably because of some of the stuff we've been talking about, it can be such a confusing place to be that it's just there's so much in there for coaching work together. And not only that, there's something really wonderful when you see a COO who was very confused or a bit discombobulated then sort of really start to develop their own mental model and move forward and really thrive in that role. And the difference it can have to a business when that COO is really comfortable and thriving as well is enormous. So, yeah, I, I love love working with
1: COOs. So, we've covered so many amazing topics today. If our audience has just one thing to, Take away from our conversation.
2: What do you want them to make sure to take away? That the power in the COO role is about the difference, actually. And if you, rather than the confusion that the difference in the role and the ambiguity in the role causes, I think that's the power in it. And if you can really embrace that, then you can be a very authentic COO in your own right and be very powerful. And so, how do you sort of flip that on its head? It may be very confusing. It may be an ambiguous space to navigate, but that can be its real power.
1: Oh, I wish I had that when I first started. Thank you.
0: <laughs> I know. I, as I was just listening to, I'm, I'm contemplating what you actually just said. So I'm going to have to go away after this podcast and and consider that that final thought. It feels like a, a guru level uh, a thought to to leave us with here. So thank you, Davinia, for an amazing conversation. Uh, Your style is very thoughtful, and I felt like the conversation was, I feel like we should be like breaking bread or something like that as we complete our our podcast here. But thanks for everyone for listening to our first episode of The Operations Room. If you like what you hear, please uh, subscribe or leave us a comment, and we will see you next week.